things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy with yours truly, the one and only Stephen A. Smith, coming at you as I love to do three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays via my podcast that's now uh, approaching its first month over the airwaves in the streaming world and beyond. Love doing this, love continue doing this, and each time I do it, I always end up finding something that inspires me. I don't personalize things too often, don't feel the need to, because I'm a relatively private person, but it's inescapable sometimes when you're touching on issues to not touch on issues affecting you because you feel like you're depriving the listener when you don't tell them about who you are and why you do what you do. And I think that when you think about the theme of today's show and you think about the issues involving work-life balance, it just resonates with you. It just really, really does. All of us have a desire to be the best, the GOAT, to be better than everyone else so we can rise above our station and attain everything we feel we rightly deserve. We convince ourselves of these things. We always do. It's not a negative thing either, ladies and gentlemen. It really isn't. In fact, I'd say it's required quality we all need to have, at least at some point, because that's a motivational tool. When I cover sports the way that I do throughout the years, I marveled at the late, great Kobe Bryant. Knowing Michael Jordan personally, I marvel at some of the things that he did and the attitude that he had, the commitment to excellence, the unwillingness to win, to lose rather, to, to, to falter, to end up falling down and staying down. That wasn't them. It hasn't been any champion that I've ever known. And to be truthful with you, it probably never will be. There's a difference between winners and everybody else. Winners have that little something extra. You can win in whatever you do in life. Kobe Bryant used to talk about that to me all the time. He used to bring up that word love. And I used to be like, oh, here we go. You know, what is this? Day with Oprah or something? What the hell's going on here? He's like, nah, I'm talking about love for what you do being committed to that because you love it so much that the thought of it being taken away from you, you being deprived all that you've worked to acquire and achieve and whatever you choose to pursue ultimately will be your true, true ending because devoid of that motivation, it's the true epitome of what a zombie is and what it's all about. It's a lifeless figure just moping around, walking through life feeling completely lifeless. But when you're pursuing your dreams and it becomes an absolute obsession, 
there is the possibility that it can start to have a harmful effect on your life. And that's when you got to know when to slow down. Because if the win at all cost mentality blinds you to what really matters, your family or trusted relationships or even worse, your mental state of mind, then it might be time to ask yourself, is it worth it? Are my priorities off? Is my soul at peace? Ladies and gentlemen, of course you should work hard. Of course you should aim for new heights. But priorities matter. And when we think of our mental state of mind, I'm here to tell you, you must prioritize and have some reflection. Because if you don't, you might end up losing it all. All that you worked for. We've seen it, ladies and gentlemen, time and time again, whether it be an athlete, an actor, a musician, a corporate leader, people who we thought had figured it all out. They were living a good life, owning the highest levels of success and beyond. And somehow, some way, inexplicably, they came crashing down. And it's never pretty. Enough. I don't want to call it innocuous because it does matter. But it is a game. You know, years ago, when I first started covering the NBA, my first year at ESPN on NBA Countdown, um, I got on NBA Countdown and actually it was it was the following season. That's when Metal World Peace, a.k.a. Ron Artest. It was Ron Artest, then it was Metal World Peace. Now it's Meta Sandiford Artest ran into the stands at the Palace at Auburn Hills because somebody threw a cup of water or something on him and while he was laying on the scorer's table and he immediately ran into the stands and went after them. This is Ronald Tess we're talking about here. Metal World Peace, 17 seasons in the NBA, 2002-2003 Defensive Player of the Year. Hall of Fame pest, some people would say, and the catalyst of the worst brawl ever seen at a professional sporting event, which culminated in his year-long suspension. He wasn't in a good place. He'll tell you that. He's told me that, certainly. I was in his hotel room with him in New York City just weeks after he was suspended for the year. Yet, despite all of that, six years later, Metal World Peace was back. And guess what he was doing, y'all? He was celebrating the 2010 championship with the Los Angeles Lakers. How in the hell did that happen? You know who Metal World Peace thanked? His psychologist. He said, balance is key. To find balance, you got to go in the opposite direction sometimes, which will pull you from your greatness. This is Metal World Peace talking. But for me, I had to take a couple of steps back from giving my all to the game. I had to give a little bit to me personally. It was unfortunate because I was in the prime of my career, but in the end, I felt better. It took a long time, though. I would say about the age of 28, 29 was where I started really being able to understand what was going on. He became a champion. That's what happens when you address you, not just what you do. I had Snoop Dogg on this show. Y'all know who he is. You know, there's a certain image he needs to maintain, but even he admitted that putting energy into that was holding him back in his life. Why? Because his priorities were off. That's why. Trying to keep up with that lifestyle. Listen to what Snoop Dogg said to me when he was right here on No Mercy. That probably hit me with me and my wife, you know, at home, you know, having turmoil and ripping and running and doing too much out in the streets and then coming home and taking out my frustrations on her. I feel like a, a entertainer is like an athlete. Mm. We 
take the abuse from our coaches and our fans, but we come home and we pour it out on our spouse. Mm. And I was guilty of that. And once I understood that, I had to understand that maybe I should listen to my wife instead of talking all the time. Mm. Let me see what she's talking about as opposed to making her try to see what I'm talking about. And it helped me understand life better to get a better perspective from home first. If the home ain't right, ain't nothing else going to be right. Did that come from it, an epiphany hit you? Were you in, did you go to therapy because the wife got I you did. to go to therapy? I, I did. Mean, what, what, I go did, ahead, talk Steve, about it for how, a second. How you know? Have you been talking to my wife? <laughs> I just suspected it. Too. I just how suspected you going to say it. that? <laughs> yes, I went to therapy with my wife. She, she suggested that we go get counseling. And I was up for it. I'm not too big for help. And mm-hmm. I went and sat down and poured my heart out to this lady that I didn't know and she helped me get better. Mm. How long ago was this? This was probably about four years ago. Mm. And it helped me tremendously with with a lot of stuff because it wasn't just with my wife, it was my life. Mm. You know, when you seek help, it helps you eternally and internally. And it's like people don't understand that because we're so used to thinking if we get help, we're crazy or something wrong with us. No. Mm. Help is necessary when you need it and it's okay to get it. Soup says... In the end, all of that allowed him to grow from a boy to a man, to a leader, to a father figure, and obviously a mentor. Sounds at peace and happy right now. When you think about the struggles with mental health, that's been well documented. And just because you're an actor or an athlete, you appear to be winning in a game of life, you got great work-life balance, ladies and gentlemen, that could all seem to be a facade. Because none of us knows what's really going on inside someone else's head or their heart. Kevin Love, I remember covering the NBA. He won a championship with LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers, 2016. Chosen fifth overall in the 2008 NBA draft. First team All-American coming out of UCLA. He appeared to have it all too. But guess what he wrote, ladies and gentlemen? He wrote about his decades-long fight with depression and anxiety in the Players' Tribune essay titled, Everyone is Going Through Something. Ladies and gentlemen, I remember the game. He was on the basketball court and literally, literally had an anxiety attack on the basketball court. LeBron and everybody was looking like, what what on earth is going on here? It was scary. Love called his struggles, quote, a gift, but also a curse because he used the periods of depression as fuel to win basketball games. But then his entire identity became wrapped around his on-court performance, and that only brought him to darker places. Listen to what he said here. You can't achieve yourself out of depression. You can't achieve yourself out of that high level of anxiety. He knew he needed to find a way out and turn to coping techniques such as therapy, journaling, journaling, and a daily check-in to help with the dark times. He says he now knows, quote, the better you understand yourself and who you are, you're going to feel more comfortable in your own skin and therefore better equipped to perform out there on the floor. Simone Biles was another one, seven-time Olympic gold medals, seven Olympic gold medals, I'm sorry, tied for most medals won by an American gymnast, 25 world championship medals, is the most decorated gymnast in history, considered by many to be the greatest gymnast of all time. At the 2021 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, Boz was not only shouldering a country's gold medal hopes, but the pressure of athletic dominance to make her fans proud. Yet she made the stunning decision to withdraw from Team USA's final competition, acknowledging the tremendous pressure she had been facing as the head star of the Olympics. 
Bob said, quote, she needed to focus on her mental health. She, we also have to focus on ourselves because at the end of the day, we're human too. We have to protect our mind, our body, rather than just go out there and do what the world wants us to do. She's right. Naomi Osaka, big time tennis player. We've seen her meltdowns on a tennis court. We've seen it. We've seen boxers have mental breakdowns in the ring. You think Mike Tyson biting somebody's ear was sane? You didn't think in some way that was a cry out for help? I mean, I understand that Vander Holyfield not looking at it that way, but Mike Tyson is a different animal for the rest of us to view it as. But you know, there's another way to look at this too. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about all of these stories and I'm a bit mellow now because my staff is looking at me and they'll probably be shocked. <sighs> you know, I've never been the same since my mother died. There isn't a day that goes by that darkness doesn't drape, doesn't engulf me. It could be for a few minutes. It could be for a few hours. One of the things that I love about my sister Carmen is that we both know when it hits us. See, when you have somebody in your life, in our case, it was our mother. In somebody else's case, it may be a sibling, it may be a spouse, it may be a child, it may be something. You just never know how you're going to feel from moment to moment while you're in the throes of that emotion. There isn't a day, and I repeat, a single day that I go by, even if it's just for a couple of minutes, where I'm in just a very, very dark place. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no happiness. There is no fulfillment. There is no joy. There's nothing. The difference between me now and me back in 2017 and for the first couple of years after my mother's death is that now it lasts minutes. Back then it lasted days. And there's nothing that anyone can do. Yes, you can go to therapy and you can learn how to deal with it. Yes, you can learn how to internalize and find a way to manage your emotions. You can do all of those things. And you could carry on and propel yourself through those moments just to live another day. But make no mistake, the moments are coming. So it's not about having this conversation about avoiding the moments. You ain't going to be able to do that. What this conversation is about is understanding when those moments hit you. What is it that you're enduring in that moment? And what you need to do to manage yourself through it so you can come out okay. It might take just a few minutes. It might take hours. But knowing that ultimately there's a path to enlightenment and to a light and, a sh and just a level of, a mo of momentum that can propel you to the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. Knowing that there's a light on the other side at the end of that tunnel. That's what does it for you. Those are the kind of things 
these people are alluding to. It's explained in different ways, in different shapes, forms, and fashions. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. It all comes associated with darkness. How do you get out of that light? How do you get out of that darkness to that light? I'm sorry. The answer comes in a variety of ways. But the finish line should always be this. Once you get there, the true inspirational element in it all is being able to help others get through it, not just yourself. That's what these stories that I read to you mean to me. And that's why I was interested, was one of the reasons I was interested in talking to my next guest. Someone who has dealt with his demons, has conquered them, and is loving life more now than he ever has. His name is Charlemagne the God. And I can't wait to talk to him. He's up next on No Mercy with Stephen A. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? I couldn't wait to talk to this guest. You know what? I've come to know him over the years. I've always had profound respect for him. And that's saying a lot because I've been his donkey of the week on the Breakfast Club. I don't know how many damn times. And I've never had a problem with it, ladies and gentlemen, because the man usually knows what the hell he's talking about. And if you're wrong, you got to be man enough to admit that you're wrong. And when he's right, he's right. I'm talking about the one and only Charlemagne the God for the Breakfast Club, for the Brilliant Idiots podcast, for his show on Comedy Central. Hell of a week with Charlemagne on Comedy Central, the one and only Charlemagne the God. What's going on, man? How you doing? Mr. Smith, how are you, brother? I'm doing great, man. It's good to see you. Now, I, I, I want you to know this is a very, very big deal that I'm talking to you because I usually don't like talking to Cowboy fans. It's, a, it's usually a problem for me. I really don't like talking to Cowboy fans, but I'm making an exception for you, Charlemagne. Why in the hell are you a Cowboys fan? Let's get that out of the way first. Because I grew up, I grew up in uh, Monk's Corner, South Carolina. In South Carolina, uh, I grew up in 1900. I, I was born in 1978, and so we didn't have a football team. There was no mm-hmm. Panthers. So my daddy was a Cowboys fan. So literally, he passed it, you know, down to me. Like everybody in the house had to be Cowboy fans. I remember my mom. Bought me a Mark Rippian sweatshirt. Mark Rippian, number Mark 11 Rippian. for the Washington Redskins. He was the quarterback. Mm-hmm. My mom bought me a sweatshirt from Family Dollar for no other reason other than I needed a sweatshirt because it was about to be fall. And right. this was back in the day. We used to burn trash in the yard. Wow. So we didn't have like the, the, the trash pickup. We had, we had, in the country, we had to actually go burn the trash in the yard. Right. He took that sweatshirt and threw it on the trash and, and, and let it burn. And that's how it is. He threw that and let it burn, but you didn't have that happen to you with the Cowboys jerseys later on. No, my daddy was a die. My dad's a diehard Cowboys fan. My dad actually got my daddy got arrested in two thousand eleven or twelve. I forgot because he went into MetLife Stadium on nine eleven <laughs> from South Carolina. So he right. had his he had his he had a taser on his hip, mm. you know. And they he walked right into MetLife Stadium, and then he got into it with a. With a, with a Marine on 9-11 because, you know, he grew up Jehovah Witness and my dad's a little older. So, you know, he did he, he couldn't stand during the Pledge of uh, the National Anthem. And so when his wife tried to get up to go to the bathroom, the guy wouldn't let his wife get up because they didn't stand up during the anthem. Mm. So a little scuffle broke out and he ended up tasing the guy <laughs> at that life stadium. So, so, you know, a lot of people look at you and they think that's something you would do. 
That's something you would do because no. you don't put you. I'm not saying you would, but you don't take any mess from anybody. There's no question about that. You get it from your dad. I tell you this, that night I was in the owner's suite at MetLife Stadium mm. and somebody said to me, hey, you want your dad to come in? I said, nope. Wow. Because he don't know how to act. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do that sometimes, a family. We got to do that sometimes, a family. Nope. He don't know how to act. I said that. Let's talk about you for a second, Charlamagne. First of all, Charlamagne, God, I never asked you where the name came from. How did you come up with the name Charlemagne the God? What was that about? Because when I was young, you know, my, my alias used to be Charles or, or Charlie, you know, um, especially when I was in Monk's Corner, you know, hustling, you know, and I would always say my name was Charles or Charlie. And when I was reading in a history book one day and I saw that Charlemagne was French for Charles the Great. And, you know, I was also studying the 5%, you know, teachings at the time where they teach you that the black man is God and God is a Greek word derived from the Aramic words, Guma Azdaba, which means wisdom, strength, and beauty. So I just thought it, I actually just thought it looked cool. I'm like, oh, shoot, Charlemagne the Great. But instead of the Great, I'm going to call myself Charlemagne the God. I was like 17 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my mind, I felt like it would always look good on a marquee. Right. You know, and I think I was, I think I was kind of right. I think you are right, too. But I will say this at the time, if you look at it, particularly back in the day, some people, everybody say everything's in the name. And if you Charlemagne the God, sometimes when they think about corporate America, they think that's something that ultimately would be held against you. I think it's tremendous faith that you showed in yourself that you didn't you didn't seem to let that derail you. You obviously didn't let that derail you. Did you have any fear? that having that name would derail you because somebody wouldn't want to hire, they would rather hire Charles than Charlemagne the God. No, I was too, I was too dumb to have the fear. And what I mean by that is I wasn't even thinking like that. Like my mind wasn't even on, you know, this can hold me back in corporate America. You got to think I'm coming from a dirt road in Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Like, you know, I had I had odd jobs before radio. Like I worked at a telemarketing place called Paragon Solutions. I worked at a clothing store in the mall called Demo. I worked at a factory called Industrial Acoustics. But, you know, prior to actually stepping foot in the radio station, to me, that was the most corporate job I had ever had. And it's hip hop radio. So a name like, you know, Charlemagne the God, that that goes well in hip hop radio. Cause you know, you got Rakim Allah, you have you know, Jehovah, you know? Uh, so it was like always these, you know, black men identifying themselves as, as, as gods and identifying black women as goddesses. So it, it, in, in, in hip hop radio, it worked. Probably in another environment, it probably wouldn't have. But for hip hop radio, it definitely worked. Man, we look at you and we look at your career span and this, you know, working with Wendy Williams. Started the Breakfast Club in 2010. Two books. What is it? Black Privilege. Opportunity Comes to Those Who Create and Shook Me. Both New York Times bestsellers, by the way. Hosting your own late night show now. You're in the you're in the Hall of Fame, the Radio Hall of Fame. In 2020, you and the uh, Breakfast Club crew, DJ Envy and Angela Lee, were all inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. Looking at all your accomplishments, what do you qualify or classify as the shining moment of your career? My mom telling me to just be happy that I'm making a living. And my mom telling me that I have accomplished more than anybody, you know, in my family. And, you know, I've accomplished more than anything that anybody in the family had ever even dared to dream about. So the reason I have to, to say that is because to me, that, that that qualifies everything else. Everything else to me is just 
gravy. You know what I mean? I'd be shocked. I'm actually, I literally do be shocked when certain things happen. Like I just got presented with a living legends foundation award. You know, they, they have the living legends foundation and they presented me with the Jerry Bolding radio executive award, you know, a few weeks ago in LA. And it was like me Congrats. and my man Tumor that works at YouTube. Thank you. And like Birdman and Slim got inducted. And then next month I'm getting, I'm getting a, a, a humanitarian medal. You know, from 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 here here in New York City for my work in the mental health space. So mm-hmm. I, I'm just I'm I, honestly, man, I'm just happy to be here, man. I'm happy to be a, a, a devoted husband, you know, a, 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 a great father. And literally just my mom telling me, just be happy you're making a living for whatever reason. I don't know. That just took a lot of pressure off me and her saying that her acknowledging that I was successful. It just took a lot of pressure off me. That's where I was going with it because I'm wondering. I mean, my mom, God, she passed away in 2017. God rest her soul. I mean, you know, I always lived to make her proud. And her whole thing was put your head down, do the job, be be a law-abiding citizen. Don't have your ass up in jail. Don't do anything like that. But ultimately, just work hard and do your job, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, I've always pushed to strive, to strive to be the best. That's just me. Uh, but you based on what you're saying, even though you obviously have ambition in the same breath, it was like you didn't have any pressure whatsoever that you felt from the moment your mom told you that. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like it was one of those things where I knew everything was going to be, be fine. You know, and she, and she told me this, man, she told me this on my second contract with the breakfast club, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, I, when I first signed with the breakfast club, I had a two year deal with an option. And instead of exercising the option, they just decided to give me a new three year deal. And, you know, when I when I told her what I was making, you know, this is this is a woman who the most she ever made as a school teacher in Mount Corner, South Carolina was 30 grand a year. Mm. So when she heard that number, she was like, wow. You know, she was just like, you know, just be happy to be making a living. And then, you know, when the, when the next thing came, the next contract came, she was just like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah. wow, like, you know, um, you know, you've accomplished more than anybody in the family. And that that just took a lot of pressure off me. And, you know, that's my my mom's. She's older. So like the little things like her seeing me on The View, yeah. you know, or me, me, me being at Patti LaBelle's house doing an interview. Like those are the things that make her like that's her era. That's her generation. You know, her seeing me with Whoopi. Like so that makes her feel like, you know, I've really um I've really arrived being a New York Times bestseller. She's an English teacher. Yeah. You know, she was she was she was telling me to read things that don't pertain to me when I was in second grade. She's the one that influenced my my reading habits. So, you know, yeah, man, her her but being it, proud of me was the ultimate accomplishment. But as a mom, you also have concerns. You know, they care about their baby boys. They worry about them all the time. And you have been known to ask pointed questions. You ain't running from any issue. No matter who's in front of your face, whatever needs to be asked, you're going to ask those questions. Did she ever look? I remember when my mother looked at me, Charlemagne, she was like this. With a West Indian accent, I did not raise you that way. Why are you asking these questions? Why are you <laughs> agitating people like this? It, it worried the hell out of her. What about your mother? It's one thing to know that you're earning an honest living. It's another thing entirely for her to watch you and to see how pointed your questions could be and how much you can agitate people from time to time. She ever talked to you about that? Yeah, I don't think my mom was paying attention when I was really agitating people. I mm-hmm. think she started because, you know, we were we were syndicated. We've been syndicated since 2013, 2014, but we didn't get syndicated in my hometown until like 
a couple of years ago. So I think that's when she started to pay a lot more attention. Plus, when we started talking to more guests that she actually knows. So like now her friends are sharing things with her. But and I'm a I'm a I'm a different version of myself than I was back then. So I don't think she really paid attention. She did call me this week and say, um, she did tell me this week that one of her friends called her and told her, you tell, you tell Nod to look out for Kenya now. <laughs> tell him, be careful, be careful with Kenya that Kenya. That Kanye, Kenya now. And, and my mom was like, is he talking about the country, Kenya? But she was talking about, <laughs> talking about Kanye. Yeah, right. I get where you're coming from with that. And, 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 and speaking of Kanye, because obviously doing the Breakfast Club and, and, and interviewing everybody on the club, y'all do a phenomenal job. I got to give you a lot of props for that. I love being on the show when y'all invite me on. Uh, you've interviewed politicians. You've made news before the election when, when, when Joe Biden came on and was, you know, talking about, you know what, if you, if you got a problem vote between me or Donald Trump, you ain't black. I remember that one. When you think about all of these things that you encounter right now and the positions that you take, how do you see yourself in this stratosphere, particularly the, the political climate that we're living in, the world that we're living in, some of the violence taking place in the streets, you know, the whole woke movement and everything else? What role do you see yourself playing at this particular moment in time, considering all the things that you've accomplished, not just with The Breakfast Club, not just with your show, not just with your podcast, The Brilliant Idiots, but also with just some of the political positions that you've been unafraid to tackle? I honestly feel like I'm just a concerned citizen citizen with a voice. I truly feel that way. Like, I'm not trying to be anything. I'm not part of no political party. You know, I'm not part of no woke movement. You know, I'm just a concerned citizen. And I try to be objective and I try to call things, you know, the way I see them. And I think that, man, right now we live in an era where you have this, you have like this these fanatics on both sides. You have these 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 MAGA fanatics on I the agree. right, and you have these Democratic fanatics on the left, and it's like, man, you can't even be objective. Like you can't, I can't even criticize somebody on the left without somebody saying, "Oh, well, you supporting Trump? Are you supporting fascism? Are you supporting you know these white supremacists on the right?" And I can't, you know, say anything that might be I see positive on the right without somebody, you know, saying, "Oh, you just trying to discredit." You know, Joe Biden, uh, you just trying to discredit the Democratic Party. It's like it's just weird. Like I'm just a concerned American citizen who sees some things good happening over here. Some things good happening over here. Some things bad happening over here. Some things bad happening over there. And I should be able to call call them call it all how I see it. But you know that you can't without one extreme side or the other pointing the finger at you just like you articulated. So where does that leave you and how does that influence how you go about your day to day, how you go about doing the work that you do on a daily basis? I think, you know, I, I've, I've heard a wise, very well paid man on first take say quite a few times, I don't give a damn <laughs> what you think about me. You know, I'm going to call it how I see it. I can only do that. That's the only thing that's going to make me sleep good at night. I'm not going to sleep good at night knowing that I'm playing to a side. I'm not going to sleep good at night knowing that I'm just saying something because this is what people want to hear. Like, I have to call it how I see it, and I got to take what comes with that. How do you deal with that from that perspective that you just described, knowing how much mental health means to you, how much effort you put towards addressing those issues? 
while taking into account the fact that when people find themselves in these precarious situations where it would provoke intrigue and probing by somebody such as yourself, they can fall back on the whole mental health issue as being a cause for some of the mistakes that they may spew or they may make along the way. How do you deal with that? Well, I think two things can be true. I think that you can, you know, suffer from mental health issues and still make bad choices and bad decisions that don't have anything to do, you know, with, with, with your with your mental health issues. You know, I'm never going to discredit anybody's mental health issues. But, man, a lot of these brothers, man, and a lot of these, you know, sisters, they they have every I'm going to really stick with the brothers right now. But okay. they, they have every, they have every access to, to the best resources and don't take advantage of them. Like what? Tell, tell our audience that when you say they have access to the best resources, be specific about that. They have access to the best psychiatrists, the best therapists, the best spiritual advisors. You know, they can go away to these retreats, you know, for a year or two until they get their, their mind right. You know, they have access to some of the best medications. You know, they have they have access to just some of the best healing that, you know, the world has to offer. And they're not taking advantage of it. You know, and I mean, how, how much... <laughs> how much can you sit around and, you know, say that you're dealing with mental health issues, but not actually go out there and, and attempt to get that help, you know? And, you know, people have been bringing that up in regards to, you know, Mr. Kanye West, but I'm like, I was man, getting ready to go there. For, for, for me, it's like, man, if we let Kanye use that as an excuse for bigotry, then every white supremacist can use that as an excuse for bigotry. You know, everybody that wants to be anti-black, anti-Semitic, you know, homophobic, whatever, they can use that as as a reason. Oh, I got, you know, mental health issues. All right. I think two things can be true. I think you can, you know, deal with your mental, I think you can have mental health issues and still be a bigot. I don't think that those things are, uh, are, are you know, mutually <laughs> exclusive at all. Mm. You know, or not mutually exclusive. I don't think those things are tied together at all. I think those right. things are two separate, you know, entities as far as if you ask me. One of the things that infuriated me when we talked about him and his anti-Semitic remarks, I mean, just talking about just 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 ridiculous comments. That's one thing. But he also, you know, offended me as a black man, to be quite honest with you, when you're going to sit up there and talk about how, you know, George Floyd, you know, he 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 passed away because it was fentanyl in his system. And and, and that's what happened. And, And I'm like, you know what? I don't even have to read up on that. Maybe there was. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I saw the officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. We originally thought it was eight minutes. This is nine minutes and 29 seconds. That's what we learned during the trial for Derek Chauvin, who was ultimately committed for George Floyd's murder. And to see the video and to have a black man come out and say, well, you know what? Your your, your eyes are lying to you. That that didn't happen. It was really fentanyl as to why he died to me. We need to be mentioning that as much as we mention his anti-Semitic remarks. Where do you stand with that? I agree 100 percent. That's what I've been mentioning the whole time. You know, for me, um, Kanye West has always made anti-black statements. I'm on record as saying that I've never met a black man who seeks white validation more than Kanye West. And what he does is, you know, he'll step on black people in his quest for white validation. And then when he gets backlash from black people and all of a sudden he tries to become so pro-black and people fall for it every time for whatever reason. But, you know, this isn't the first time you had the slavery was a choice comment. You have the, you know, Harriet Tubman didn't free the slave comments. You know, when 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 I've heard Kanye say, you know, black people need to stop focusing on 
race, you know, so much. Like he said these things and he always says these things when he's up. But whenever he's going through something and he's down or somebody's attacking him, then that's when he gets so pro-black because he knows that black people are very forgiving people and will always come to his defense, always come to his aid. So a few weeks ago, he wore the White Lives Matter shirts. We all know White Lives Matter is a hate slogan. It's a slogan that was used by white supremacist groups when black people started affirming themselves by saying Black Lives Matter. The Anti-Defamation League has it up on its website as a hate slogan. It was that. So then he flips it and starts, for whatever reason, just randomly attacking Jewish people on social media because he knows that that's going to rile up a certain section of people who have those conspiracy theories about Jewish people. So here's the question. In light of everything that you're saying, you talked about black folks being very, very forgiving people. And Kanye West knows that that's exactly how it's going to be. Broadening this topic. How do you feel about the fact that we are such forgiving people at times? You know, like you said, they attack you if you call him out and they saying, you know what? You cater into the right. You know what they come at me with, mm-hmm. you know, sell out and all of this other stuff. I mean, it's it, no matter what. Ninety nine percent of the time you can fight battles on behalf of our people. One percent of the time you might disagree with us and you're a sellout. How do you think about How do you feel about that? I mean, for me, it is what it is. I mean, nobody likes to get called that, especially by their own people, um, especially yeah. when you know, you know, the things that you in particular do for black people. But I just think it's something that comes with the territory. Like, I've seen it happen mm-hmm. to the best of us. I've literally seen it happen to the best of us. If you watch a documentary like, you know, uh, King in the Wilderness by Martin Luther King Jr., he, he, he died at the end of his life with like a 30-something percent approval rating. 70% of people dislike Martin Luther King Jr. And he died with anxiety and depression because he was getting it from all sides. His own people was calling him an Uncle Tom and sellout. The rest of America was calling him a communist. So it's just like, I just think that's, that's something, I hate to say it, but that's just how some of us are wired, man. And that makes it easier too. I mean, when you hear that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had to go through this, of course, we're not comparing ourselves to him. At all. At all, not in any way. But it does make it a bit easier to know if you can attack him, you'll attack anybody. You'll attack anybody. That's right. And I just think that, you know, when when it comes to us as black people, man, like, you know, in a lot of ways, we got to hold ourselves accountable. Like I see uh, this conversation happening right now. And the conversation is, um, well, how come, you know, nobody stood up, uh, you know, against Kanye? Or how come none of this stuff happened with Kanye when he was making the anti-black, you know, rhetoric? Well, Whose job is it to hold him accountable for anti-black rhetoric? I would think that's black, black people. people's job. <laughs> that's right. Like, I would think that's our job, you know, to hold him accountable. I don't think that's anybody else's job, you know? This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Listen, I want to go to your book, uh, Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. It's been described as powerfully written, to say the least. Details your battle with anxiety along with the fear of being a dad, a bad dad, or a terrible husband. I want to know what prompted you to be so open and raw about that and, and, and along with your belief in the need to address and battle mental health. Talk about that for a second. Well, for me, man, you know... Um You'll, you'll, you'll find this out soon enough because, you know, you got a book coming out, Scrape Shooter. 
And, you know, when I put out Black Privilege, Black Privilege was such a success. I think it was on the New York Times bestsellers list for like 15 weeks in a row. Yep. And, you know, it still sells a lot of copies. But immediately, my book agent, the book publisher, Simon & Schuster, they was asking me for another book. And I was like, I don't, I'm spent. Like, I just gave you, you know, my my whole life up to that point, you know, in a book. And I actually was the most confused I had ever been in my life, you know, during that time. Because I had started going to therapy about a year prior. And anybody that's, you know, done any therapy, they know, man, that nothing makes you feel more vulnerable and more raw than that first year of therapy because you you spend so much time unlearning. It's not mm. about what you're learning. It's about what you're unlearning. So everything you thought you knew, everything you thought you had figured out, you realize, like, I don't have none of it together. Mm. And so... When they came to me asking for another book, I was like, man, I don't, I'm I'm not even in that headspace right now. Only thing I got is like this journal that I've been keeping. I can't blame you. I wrote a book. Listen, Charlemagne, I'm telling you right now, I don't think I'll ever write another book again in my life. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever do it again in life. I'm telling you. I don't think I'll ever do it again. <laughs> so only thing I had was this journal that I was keeping in therapy. And um, I told my book agent that, and she was like, well, can I read a couple pages? And I was like, sure. And so I gave it to her, and she was like, this could be very powerful. And she was like, you know, if what what if we got, got you with a doctor, my man, Dr. Ish Major, and like, you know, you told your experiences and let him give the clinical, you know, correlations to, to a lot of this stuff. And so that's what we did. And I put it out, man, and I didn't even look back because mm. I wasn't even ready to go talk about what was in that book, honestly. Like when I when mm-hmm. I had to go on the Dr. Phil's and the Tamron Hall's and the Dr. Oz's mm-hmm. of the world, I was having panic attacks on the shows. And the reason mm-hmm. I was having panic attacks on the shows is because I wasn't ready to have those conversations publicly. So for me, it was like sink or swim. So I went out there and I just spoke about what I was going through or spoke about what I was feeling, what I historically had felt throughout my life in terms of anxiety and depression and just wanting to be a better human and it resonated with people. And so I, I, be, I became this unofficial mental health advocate turned official right. mental health and advocate. I, and I was getting ready to say, and the goal was what exactly? Because it's one thing for you to overcome your anxieties. But when you talk about reaching out to extend a helping hand to those that are going through it, everybody's a bit different. So from a general or a generic perspective, the goal was what in writing that book? Oh, that that was just a, that honestly was just a cry for help. It wasn't even a a goal. It was just it actually was part of my therapy. You know, I had I had like I said, the book agent and the book publisher was pushing me to do another book. I didn't even know I had another book in me. So for me, that was God. That was God mm-hmm. saying, "No, I want you to do this. I, this is this is something that's bigger than you, and it's going to be you know bigger than you." I was literally just telling my story, same way I was getting on the radio every day. And telling my story, telling people about, you know, going to therapy every Friday at three o'clock. You know, that's Mm -hmm. all this book was, was me literally sharing my experiences of going to therapy every Friday at three o'clock. I didn't have a goal. There was no goal other than these people said they wanted a second book. And this is what I was going through in my life at the time. Now, when I look back, I realized that that book, you know, opened up the conversation for me to continue to talk about, you know, my mental health issues and not just me, but for other people to feel comfortable talking about their mental health issues. Is Charlemagne the God here today in this state, 
in this condition at this point in time in his career if he doesn't go to those therapy sessions? Absolutely not. I would have I would have I would have ruined everything. All the self-sabotage that you see so many people going through right now. I would have I, I would have been one of those self-sabotages. There's no doubt in my mind. I saw I saw that for myself. I was looking in the mirror saying to myself everything that I I have I have fought so hard not to be I have become. And you know, mm-hmm. I I started to realize that I was about to ruin my family and my situation the way I saw my dad ruin his family and 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 his situation with my mom, you know, 30 years ago. You know, however long it's been. When you say that, you've talked often about how, you know, you're a happily married man and obviously you're a father. How many kids, by the way? How four many daughters. Kids I got four girls. Four, four daughters. So you got four daughters. I've got two. You've got four daughters. And obviously your wonderful wife. Are you saying that you were on the verge of ruining all of that? Oh, 100%. Without question. Like I was running these streets, living that radio star life. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I had never been that version of myself. You know, I got money and, you know, access, you yeah. know, some 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 fame. Like, you know, I was I was really living a life. I was testing those, you know, superpowers in a real way. Mm-hmm. And um I just knew that I was eventually about to lose the most important thing to me. And how did you know? What was the moment? Some for some people, it's just you sitting alone. For others, that wonderful woman that 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 you've been married to, you know, she corners you. She confronts you. I mean, what what was the defining moment that made you get to a point where you say, you know what, I'm going to go to therapy? Yeah, I mean, I already saw it coming for myself just because I saw what happened with my dad and my mom. But I remember one mm-hmm. one night being out in L.A. And, you know, L.A. always feels like a different world because the time zones are different. So if you got your family on the East Coast and you out in mm-hmm. L.A., it just feel like, feel like you get away world. with a whole lot. Yes. While everybody sleep, you know, and um, I remember just getting a, a, a call one morning from my wife and I, she said to me, she said, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm sleeping. I, I was sleeping, but, you know, there was somebody next to me. Right. And she's like, right. what do you, she was like, no, what are you doing with your life? You about to lose it all. And it's just like that woman's intuition. She just mm-hmm. knew. And I don't know, man, something about that phone call just made me realize like I had to really get it together. And it, that was 2016. I'll never forget it. It was October of 2016. That's only six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was something about that phone call that just like shook me to my core and made me realize like, man, I got to get it together. And it was almost like it was, it was like her and like combination of like God in my head saying, right. you going right. to get it together. Or all of this is about right. to be taken away from you. Right. Strange question. Don't know if you've ever been asked this. At that moment, was it the fear of losing her or losing your daughters? Both. Or losing that whole family atmosphere? Sometimes it's one or the other with people. You know where I'm going with that. No, for me, it was everything. It literally, for me, was everything. I love my wife. love her to death. It's my best friend, you know. And and plus, I'm a person that, that, that prides himself on being authentic. And it's not authentic to lay down with a person every night and be lying to them. I'll go home to a person every night and be lying to them. Like, I can't even live with myself like that. Like, that, right. that, and that causes a whole different level of anxiety. That mm-hmm. causes a whole different level of depression because you know you live in a lie, mm-hmm. you know? So for me, it was like, I didn't want to lose any of that. And that's why I tell brothers now, man, I said, if you ask me why I've had so much success over the past six years, it's because of that. It's because mm-hmm. I decided 
to not only start going to do the work on myself in therapy, but also because I decided to commit myself to my wife and 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 be a faithful black man for real, be yeah. a faithful man for real, and you know, devote myself to my daughters and literally just look at my life the last six years. Every single level, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, financially, has went up because I made a commitment to myself. I made a commitment to my family. I made a commitment to God, and I've been blessed for it. It's interesting that you say that because, to me, that's a micro way of looking at it where you can pinpoint the details that that you ultimately benefited from. To me, a lot of other people just use the word peace because all of that stuff that was going on six years ago and prior— that's chaos. Yes. And the moment you make that commitment to be better. That's right. To be the man that you're supposed to be. There's a level of tranquility. I got one of my boys out in California, my man, Jeff Charlemagne. This brother is in his pajamas and footies at 7 p.m. <laughs> you got, you, Charlemagne, you got, you better have a damn good reason for calling him at the 7 p.m., okay? Because he don't want to hear from nobody because he got his wife and his two kids He's been married for 30 years. And this is a brother that don't even want to see the single life. He don't even want to think about it. That's how happy and blissful his life is. And he swears that's the reason he's more healthier than most men. You agree with that? I agree with Jeff 3 billion percent. I'm telling you, I wish I could show people how I looked six years ago. I wish I could show people how I felt six years ago. You know what I mean? I wish, I wish people knew how just confused and insecure and lack of self-worth I had because I was literally feeding my ego and not my soul. Mm -hmm. And when you try to feed your ego, man, like it's a bottomless pit. Like it's like Seymour off, off that little house of horrors. Feed me, feed me, feed me. Always <laughs> right, want more, right, right. always want more. Yeah. I need more yep. women. I need more money. I need more alcohol. I need more weed. All that, you just feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. It's like, but man, when you really devote yourself to your wife, and your family, and you really start feeding your soul, that's when you start to really feel full in a real way. I tell brothers that all the time. There is no, there is nothing to gain from being out there in them streets. Nothing. I remember when I saw transitioning, because I'm staying in the same place, but you'll see where I'm going in a second. I remember watching the Oscars, and I remember watching Will Smith slap Chris Rock. And... I remember, um, and actually, you're a black man, you were appalled, you pissed off, you're looking at Will Smith like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you do something like that, et cetera, et cetera? That's a natural reaction. And Lord knows what the hell is, you know, I mean, Chris Rock is, is a friend and I know him, you know, but obviously that's been a devastating situation for him. Thank God he's recovering and doing his thing. I would ask you this question, though. If you remember, because you'd know this better than me, because I'm covering sports, you're covering the world, entertainment, pop culture, a lot more than me. And I remember so many people pointing to Will Smith and his family situation as to why something like that happened. Where did you go when you first saw what transpired? Where did your thought process go as it pertains to Will Smith specifically? I was, I was terrified. And the reason I was terrified is because I know Will. I know Will and Chris. And, you know, I have, I have great conversations with both of them. You know, I've, I've had the privilege and honor of spending time with both of them. And I know Will is a person that does the work. I know yeah. Will is a person that goes to therapy. I know Will is a person that has, you know, spiritual advisors. Like I was talking about earlier, these people have the access to the best. He has that. And it scared me because I'm like, damn, if Will can have all of that and be doing the work, 
but still on the biggest, the biggest moment of his career, the biggest moment he's ever had professionally where he's about to win the Oscar for Best Actor, if he can snap like that, what hope is there for the rest of us? Yeah. That's li- that's literally what my what my mind went. I was a f- I was terrified. I wasn't judging him, condemning him, nothing. I was thinking to myself, man, the biggest night of his life, something triggered him. Some 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 type of unhealed trauma that he hasn't dealt with triggered him that caused him to do that to another brother on national television. Mm. Yeah. And and that's that's literally still where my mind is at with it. I'm still in that space like that is scary that that could happen to him in that moment. Because that could, if that can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. I love Will Smith, and I appreciate the work that he's done, the great work that he's done over the years. And if there's ever a brother that should have his arms wrapped around him by so many within our community, it should be him because of so many battles that he's fought on our behalf that we don't even know about. The same, in a way, can be said about Chris Rock. Like I know Chris Rock. You know both of them. I know my man Charlie Mack, but I don't know Will Smith like that. And, and and I'm I'm thinking along those lines and my mindset, Charlemagne went to a place where it was like, black man slapping a black man, bad enough. First time a black man was producing the Oscars with Will Packer. Like, it was about you. And I can't believe that you of all people, Will, was the one that forgot about the profound moment that was before all of us having this opportunity as a community. And it was stained with this. That's where my mind was. And that's the hard thing for me to let go, to be honest with you. But you know, that's, that, that lets you know how, how much of whatever triggered Will, that lets yeah. you know how much of that trauma he hasn't dealt with. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. clearly there was a trigger. Clearly something set him off. And to your point, I actually, I, me and Chris talked that night. You know what I mean? Because I, I was concerned about Chris as well, yeah. too. Because yeah. Chris has openly talked about being bullied, you know, yeah. throughout his life. And so I feel like in a lot of ways that might have brought back a lot of those, you know, yeah. feelings of being bullied when when he was younger. Like, you know, I, Chris, I've heard Chris say, I'm the person that people hit when they can't hit who they really want to hit. Right. You know, so I was feeling for both of them. I saw both. Well, I saw Will projecting pain on somebody who didn't do anything to him, you know, mm-hmm. And I don't know what that trigger was that mm-hmm. that caused that, but no, nah, I didn't. I was I was just more concerned about both of them as men as opposed to like the whole production of of, of the Oscars and everything. Before I let you get on out of here, Charlemagne, before uh, with just a couple more questions left, I want to know: Do you embrace and fully accept the fact that you are now a preeminent voice? Like you said, you know Will Smith a little bit. You know Chris Rock. You've spoken to both of them on many occasions. You interview a lot of prominent figures. I mean, obviously, Charlemagne the God is one of those people you want to talk to if you're trying to make things happen, if you're trying to influence change in some capacity. Your show, Hell of a Week, is executive produced by late show host and TV vet Stephen Gobert. A lot of people don't realize that. But that's going on now. You're approaching 50. You got the Breakfast Club. You got your own late night show. You got your own podcast. You're a two-time New York Times bestseller with your books. You've arrived, my brother, from the standpoint of being able to make a difference. It's one thing to have that realization. It's another thing to embrace it and welcome it. What category would you describe yourself as being in when it comes to that? I, I, I don't put myself in a category, but I just recognize the responsibility. You know, Malcolm X once said that a person who controls the media controls the minds of the masses. That's something that I take 
very seriously. I didn't necessarily take it seriously early on in my career, but as I'm older and I realized the impact and the influence that all of these different platforms that we talk about have, I, I, I do take it, you know, very serious, but I'm just, I'm really just a conduit in a lot of ways. There's things that I have thoughts on, but I bring the experts on for that. Like I bring, that's what I do. I bring yeah. the Angela Rise and the Michael Eric Dyson's and, you know, the, 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 the Teslin Figaro's, the people who speak politics, who, who, who be on the front lines fighting for social justice, like Tamika Mallory. Like I bring the experts on to do the expert stuff. Everything else is just me being a concerned citizen. And when I'm really concerned about something, I go reach out to the person that I know who can speak to that. And that's Angela Rye calling me right now. Speak of the devil. Like that's, literally, that's not right. the devil. I just, I, I interviewed her a few hours ago. Oh, wow. Not speak, speak, speak of a great black woman. That's her calling me right now. But it's just like, I go get the experts for stuff like that. But I totally recognize the responsibility and the power of the platform. And it's not something I, I, I take for granted at all. Where do you feel we are or how concerned are you about us as a black community as these elections are on the way? About less than two weeks away from an election. You know what I'm saying? Where the House and the Senate will be tilted in some people's eyes. And the direction that this country is going in is causing quite a, a significant amount of concern for the black community. Where do you where do you lie with all of that? Man, that's such an interesting question. And the reason it's such an interesting question because my mind has been all over the place when it comes to politics. I've been connected, but I've been disconnected. And the reason I've been disconnected so I'm, because I'm really disgusted by the whole process. But I think that black people, I think Stacey Abrams said something I thought was so interesting. She said, it's not that black people have a lack of enthusiasm. Black people have a lack of trust. And I think that's where I'm at. I have a lack of trust, you know, with, in what? with the Democratic Party. Yeah. You know, and I think so that, I. I think so right now, I, I think we're, we, we put so much pressure on voters to go out there and vote. And we kind of like shame, we shame people who don't go out there and vote who are who, who, who are who aren't enthused about voting. But we don't have that same energy for the elected officials. You have to understand why some people are discouraged. You have to understand why some people are disgruntled because when you make campaign promises and you don't keep those campaign promises, you can't expect people to be so enthused about you, you know, the next time around. It's literally yeah. this simple. If they were to keep the campaign promises that they that they that they said on the campaign trail, if they actually went in there and got these things done and they were fighting hard against this so-called evil, they would have people energized every election. Well, I'll take this step and this is my last comment about this subject before I let you go. Charlemagne, here's my position. I'm a centrist. I'm a, I'm a centrist who leans left. I'm fiscally conservative with my money because I can't stand these taxes in New York and L.A., okay? <laughs> and I'm socially liberal in every imaginable way. Live and let live. But I'll tell you this. The thing that drives me crazy is that I can't stand when politicians come up to us, you know, engaging in demagoguery towards the other party instead of telling us what you bring to the table. See, it's, it's, it's real That's easy it. to just say, oh, they racist. Really? Well, well, tell me what your policy is against theirs and let me decide what's better. As opposed to you trying to convince me that I should fear them and I should hate them. And as a result, leaving me no choice but to go on your side. That's my problem. Yeah, I saw President Biden yesterday. 
Uh, he was given like his, you know, like they called it his closing remarks before the midterms. And literally all he said was, just look at the alternative. No. No, no man. That's Break right. it down for me. Tell me what you've done and tell me what they're not doing. Now, do I think this country is on the fast track to fascism? Yes, I absolutely positively do. But sometimes I look at the Democrats and I'm like, I don't I don't see the sense of urgency. Right. Y'all telling me that, you know, democracy is is on the brink of being gone. And you're telling me that fascism is fast approaching. But I don't see y'all acting like that. I don't see y'all responding to the moment like that. So I'm just like, well, how serious is it? You know what I mean? Like I saw President Obama say he don't know how much, you know, stomping he's going to do for the midterms. You know, I, I, and I think I saw the day where he's going to be with Stacey Abrams in Georgia this weekend, which is great. But if 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 he felt like he's not going to do that much stomping for the midterms, then how serious are the midterms? Exactly. Like, you know, I just I just don't see them speaking to the, you know, sense of urgency. So, like I said, it's not that I have a lack of enthusiasm because I'm definitely voting. I just have a lack of trust with anything truly getting done. Last question. What's next for you? Because you've always got something going on and, and you've earned the right for the world to know what is next for Charlemagne the God. I mean, I already talked about your shows and your books and everything else. What you got next, bro? Well, everything I'm doing now, man, you know, I always say anything I'm doing that just benefits me, it's not big enough. So literally everything I'm doing now, you know, benefits people. That's that's my whole thing, Stephen. Uh, you know, we have all of these conversations. Everybody want to talk about being so pro-black and, you know, what's what's going on with black people. I challenge people. How many jobs are you creating? That's how right. Many jo- how many jobs have you created? Because, I, you know, I you look at my Black Effect podcast network, you look at SBH Productions, you know, the company me and Kevin Hart have at Audible. You look mm-hmm. at my book imprint, Black Public, Black Privilege Publishing at Simon & Schuster. You look at my TV show. You look at my production company. You know, that's that's literally like 100 jobs I just named. And that's just yeah. jobs. That's just staff and executive yeah. positions. All my leadership roles are Black women at every single one of those companies. That's right. You know, that's not even talking about the creatives that we're empowering by, you know, putting out Tamika Mallory's book or putting out Anita Kopak's book or... You know, with 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 uh, Black Effect Podcast Network, all of the different we have, we got twenty five different podcasts under that network. You know, from Drink Champs to All the Smoke to you know eighty five South to Just Hilarious. Like we're providing revenue for people. We're creating jobs for Black people. You look, you can go look under the hood at any one of my companies. Ninety percent Black and Brown. And by the way, I'm glad you said ninety percent because just because you're Black doesn't mean that everybody you employ has to be Black. You can hire, you got to hire a bunch of brothers and sisters, no question about it, because we deserve, we've earned the right to give others opportunities. But at the end of the day, we got to be productive, we got to be effective, and more importantly, we got to be committed to being fair-minded ourselves. So you can sprinkle some other stuff up in there, but at the end of the day, we going to give ours an opportunity to shine. That's what it's all about. That's right. So when you ask me what's next, man, I'm just going to continue to keep, you know, building opportunities for other people, because as long as I'm building opportunities for other people, I'm always going to be creating opportunities for myself. Man. Proud of you, bro. You know that. Thank you, Steven. Always here, bro. I appreciate you, man. No doubt. Always. We'll talk soon. Peace, King. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Thanks again to the one and only Charlemagne and God for his words of wisdom. I respect that brother. You know, there's a lot of people that's going to be critical of some of the things that he has said over the years and what have you, but what he's done is articulate 
honestly, I might add, the journey that he has endured. He was young. He thought differently. Um, he was going through a lot of things and wasn't rationalizing the pain uh, that he was enduring, that he was experiencing, what others were going through as well. He didn't think about those things. Um, his behavior at times was detrimental potentially to his family. That means his wife and his children and stuff like that. Listen, it's not about the road you travel. It's how you learn from it. What you do to pick yourself up from whatever abyss, physical, emotional, or otherwise, that you may have fallen into, how you lift yourself up, you recover, you persevere, and then you prosper. That's what it's really all about. And in order to get to that point in time, you've got to be mentally healthy. Or you at least have to be mentally healthier than you were in the past when you were achieving things. And sometimes you can get caught up in achievement that you don't forget the things that you sacrifice along the way. And that's a difficult conversation to have, especially for me, because what we're not going to do on No Mercy with Stephen A. Smith is be a bunch of hypocrites. The fact of the matter is, for so many years, I've spent time believing balance is overrated. You know, people say, you know, guess what? You got to have just as much family time as you do work time and all of this other stuff. And I thought that they were full of it. And the reason I felt that way was because the world doesn't coordinate with that kind of thinking. Most of the time when you're successful or you're striving to become successful, there are incredible, incredible sacrifices that you have to make. The question is, what are you going to do about it when you have when you encounter those sacrifices and you're called upon to make decisions, how are you, how are you what are you going to do and how are you going to handle it? I remember years ago when I was being in, when, when somebody came up to me and I was getting, I was, you know, really making a name for myself in this business and somebody came along and they were like, you know, Mr. Smith, man, you know, I'm a real fan of yours. You know what I'm saying? And that's one of the things I, I that's my pet peeve with me and my peoples. Me and my peoples. I can't stand when somebody says to me, you know what I'm saying? And you ain't said nothing yet. Oh, that pisses me off. That just gets on my last damn nerve. You know what I'm saying? You know, because you know what I'm saying. No, I don't. You didn't say anything yet. Drives me nuts. Little pet peeve of mine. That and people walking around with their pants hanging below their ass. That bothers me. That bothers me. I remember one time, jumping off the subject for a quick second, a cop ran up to me and said, shh, shh. Stop telling people to pick up their pants. When their pants are hanging below their ass, they're easier to catch that way. So the cops told me. They're easier to catch. They can't run as fast if your pants are hanging low. Problem is, that cop was assuming that everybody's wearing their pants below their backside for criminals. Oh, I know kids in the streets that ain't criminals at all. And they just think that's stylish. That is very counterproductive. Let me just say that as a motivational tool for y'all, but I digress. My point is, when you think about your mental well-being and you think about the sacrifices that come along with it, everything might not be worth it. It's not one size fits all. When that person came up to me years ago, Smith, you know what I'm saying? You know, I really had this great, I got this great opportunity, you know, but it's all the way in Seattle. I said, so what's the problem? He was like, you know, my, my, my girl is, you know, she here in Maryland. You know, I, I just don't, I'm at, I'm at a loss as to what to do. I said, you sure you want to ask me that question? I said, because you know what I'm going to say to you, right? Nah, Mrs. Smith, I really, really want to hear what you got to say. 
I said, love don't pay the bills. Love doesn't pay the bills. Because my mentality was, you know something? I don't care how much she loves you. She ain't going to love being broke and homeless. And if you can't do your part in providing a roof over her head, clothes on the back, food on the table, and having a healthy quality of life, that's not, gonna, that's not something she's going to vibe with anyway. So you might as well put your career first. Well, guess what? I wasn't entirely accurate. Don't get me wrong. The advice wasn't wrong. It was just incomplete. The first thing I should have asked her was, what do you want most? Because what you want most determines what level of sacrifice you truly need to make. It also determines whether or not it's truly a sacrifice for you. Now, me, I grew up poor in the streets of New York City. Rats and roaches all over the place. Mama scratching and clawing and doing everything she could to get me to a point where we could survive and prosper. Ultimately, close those, those holes in the roof. Make sure heat was in the house, food was on the table. The sacrifices she had to make for us, words can't even describe our gratitude. It's eternal. This is why you got so many dudes loving their mamas to death, willing to die for their mamas, willing to make whatever sacrifices necessary. You can have hardcore criminals. You can find killers out there. See how humble they get when it comes to their mama. Because we know what y'all mean to us. And oh, by the way, there's good dads out there too, particularly in the black community. But people want to act like they don't know that, but we'll get to that another time. Charlemagne talked about being a good father. He talked about being a good husband. He talked about the fact that he didn't feel like he was none of that once upon a time because he got caught up in the life. Because he was making more money than he had ever made because he had a successful job and because his mother was like, you living a life, you already winning. So he was thinking about winning and the fact that he was winning and all of a sudden he almost lost his way and lost everything. What's the lesson to learn from all of that? It's not about a job, home life balance. It's about scanning and purviewing the crevices of your soul to find out and discover and define what is truly happy and fulfilling to you. And then from that point, being honest about what that is and marching forward. Charlemagne was honest with himself. He knew that no matter what he was doing, it wasn't worth his wife and his children. And truth be told, there is no man that should ever feel like anything is worth his children and his family. So I'm not trying to imply, like, excuse me, there's adjustments needs to be made and there's a thinking process along those lines. No, that's not true. What I'm trying to say is when you make the decision that that's the most important, those are the most important things in your life, every decision you make comes second to that. And by virtue of knowing it's second, you can make decisions accordingly. Because you understand that no matter how important those things are, it doesn't come before family. I'm a guy. Nothing comes before my daughters. Nothing. My work schedule wouldn't tell you that. 
because I'm working sometimes more than I'm with them. But the work that I put out is to provide for them because to me, providing for them and making sure they have a quality of life that I never had in my childhood is of paramount importance. The best school, the best health care, the best education, the best quality of life I can possibly provide them where you have a comfort level and eating and having heat in your home, food on your plate, clothes on your back, a roof over your head is the last thing you ever have to worry about. That's Stephen A. I have a saying all the time, ever since the day they were born. If they are hungry, it's because I'm starving. I don't eat unless they eat. I'm not comfortable unless they're comfortable. I don't pursue affluence until they have as close to affluence as they can possibly have. That's my comfort zone. What's yours? We all look, we all have questions. We're all looking for answers. But Charlemagne is one of the many people out there with the courage and the decency and the soulfulness inside himself that's willing to share with us what a remedy to what ails us truly may be. Look inside oneself. Do whatever it takes to address you, to find out who you are. What your pulse is defined by. What matters to you most. When you pull that off, everything suddenly finds its way. That's living, y'all. And that, more than his shows, more than his success, more than his, his money, probably explains why Charlemagne the God is living a good life. I can't knock the brother for that. I can only respect it and admire it. I wish him well. I hope all of y'all do the same. I hope his show, Hell of a Week, continues to soar. I hope his stint, his stint on Comedy Central continues to flourish. I hope The Breakfast Club continues to shine. And anything else that's coming his way. Because the brother's willing to tell his truth. Hopeful that it helps others. Can't ask for more than that, ladies and gentlemen. You just can't ask for more than that. Thank you for listening to this latest edition of No Mercy. Love it when y'all tune in. Keep in mind that I'm coming at you three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don't miss it. I got more coming down the pike. And remember, no matter what my background entails, I'll close by saying what I always, what I always say. You don't have to know sports to know mercy. Peace and love, everybody. Till next time. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.
Guess who's got a memoir coming out, ladies and gentlemen? Yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's entitled Straight Shooter, and it's available right now for pre-order. I have signed these books, just so you know. So you can visit straightshooterbook.com to order your autographed copy today. In the book, I talk about my life before ESPN, growing up in Hollis, Queens, New York, how sports proved to be my salvation. I talk about some of the mistakes I've made in my life and my impact on the world of sports. The book is called Straight Shooter, and it's written to help motivate you to overcome setbacks that maybe prevent you from reaching your dreams. So go right now and order your autographed copy of my memoir, straightshooterbook.com. Don't wait. It's entitled Straight Shooter. Check it out. Don't miss it.